Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. What's up, everybody? Anthony Cazenza here, joined by John Sheeran for the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. Should be a very interesting episode based on what we witnessed on Sunday. Still don't know how I feel about it. Still don't know what we can take from it, but we're going to try and digest it all and talk about it in a succinct and, I don't know, uh, sensical <laughs> manner. John, how's it going this week, bud? How you doing? You know, everything's relative. You have that game on Sunday and you don't envy the people like us who have to talk about it. But then then things start to, uh, I don't know, leak and then things are kind of put in perspective. So, you know, I, I guess I'm just worried that like one of us is going to be involved in the, uh, the email scandal. So I'm kind of <laughs> kind of on pins and needles about what's going to happen next. It, like the main character can change tomorrow and we have no oh, idea what it is. So the whole <laughs> thing is just ugh. bizarre, bizarre. Um, yeah, that uh, that whole thing escalated quickly to use a Ron Burgundyism. Um, that, I mean, it just, I, I think we know what you're alluding to there and totally out of control, disappointing stuff there. Talked about it a little bit on the, the water cooler chat slash headline show that we did yesterday. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's going to be more to come. I, I don't know who's going to be the next person spotlighted on that, but regardless, we're not, but we were talking more bangles. I mean, that's a big topic, obviously, but we're talking more bangles. And they had in just an incredible game that, unfortunately, they came on the, sh- the short side of things. We'll talk about that. We've got a an interesting state your case as a potential development on the Bengals roster and what it may look like in week six against the Lions. We've got a, a, a believe it or not there for that. And then, of course, we've got a preview of the Lions game, kind of a tricky one there. We'll talk all about that. But again, this is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast, part of the Cincy Jungle podcast channel, along with Orange is the New Black with Ace and Zim, Matt Minix, Coach Speak, and Chalk Talk episodes that he provides. And you can get the podcast, in case you're new, you can get the podcast a number of different ways, either by subscribing to our YouTube channel. There's a nice little icon right over there by John's left shoulder there you can click that to subscribe and then hit the bell to to be notified when we go live when new content is available and then of course we're on every major audio platform so subscribe to it whether you like listening to our show ace and zim show matt minnick show all of the shows subscribe to it leave us a review too if you could uh so we know how we're doing what you're liking what you're maybe not liking hopefully you like a lot of it though and uh yeah we appreciate all the support I don't know where to start with this one, John. Um, 
we, we've got a couple of topics kind of lined up and, you know, highlight talking points. And I kind of, I, I guess I'll start, I'll start with the, the thing that's uh, kind of sticking in the craw of a lot of Bengals fans right now, you made a, a nice video about certain things with, with Joe Burrow. And we'll talk about that in a second, but Zach Taylor and some of the play calls, the ebbs and flows of this game and some of the wackiness dictating what the Bengals did or didn't do in terms of play calling. I have some thoughts of my own on Zach Taylor's play calling, but I want you to bat lead off here because you've kind of engaged in some back and forth on this. There are some dis- differing opinions on what Zach Taylor did or did not do in this game from a game plan and in uh, you know play calling standpoint. What do you make of what you saw, especially in the offensive side of the ball, with the Bengals this week against the Packers? We called this game a barometer game for the Bengals before uh, last week. And I think it goes beyond more than that. It's a barometer for how the fan base and people following the Bengals analyze and treat Zach Taylor after certain things happen. Like the timeline of Zach Taylor, he's in year three now. And a lot of people don't hold the first two years against him because he was dealing with Andy Dalton and Ryan Finley and Joe Burrow's injury and COVID in a span of two years. People just throw that out the window. Now in year three, he has a coaching staff that's well put together. He has every leader imaginable that he could want to help guide the roster. And for the most part, the roster is his. But more importantly, as an offensive mind, as a play caller on offense, he has the the, the pieces to put together something very special. And when it doesn't produce like a special unit, that is where the attention goes to because nobody in the, in the city of Cincinnati or in the state of Ohio is going to point fingers at Burrow despite two costly interceptions in this game. It's going to be pointed at the guy who's making the decisions, who's calling the plays, who was hired to be what Sean McVay is with the Los Angeles Rams. And that is what happened after Sunday because when they lost by three after five potential game-winning missed field goals happened, two came against the Bengals in that sense the attention all went to Taylor because of some decisions that he made towards the end of the game. And that's what we remember, right? Um, it's just recency bias in that sense, even it's even for a three and a half hour affair, but watching the game back, I don't think this is the game to point the fingers at Taylor and, and call him incompetent at his job. You can look at the two drives that the Bengals defense bailed the Bengals offense out of after their first drive, which ended in a three and out. Chidobe Woozie had interception. He, he returned it to basically midfield for the Packers. Everything that happened leading up to the Packers' next possession, it was completely execution-wise as to why it failed. It had nothing to do with Taylor's play calling. There was a batted line at the line. There was a batted ball at the line of scrimmage. There was Samaj Piran getting bull rust in pass pro, and then there was just a third and 18 check down to Uzoma. They punted into the end zone on like fourth down, and then the next possession, the Bengals get the ball at the 50-yard line because of a shank punt from the Packers. You know, there's a seven-run. Seven-yard run from Samaj P. Ryan. There's a Jamar Chase drop on a 15-yard comeback. And then Hopkins, Trey Hopkins misses a blitz. Burrows hit as he throws, as he throws a nine ball to Chase, who's open. And then they have to punt again. There's no issues with play calling or execution or game script or just overall designs with those is completely execution-wise. And that basically was the theme for the first three and a half quarters of this game. And in it, and in it and even in the first touchdown drive, like the, the, those were good concepts. Those were good creativity and stuff like that. A lot of the bad things that happened in this game had nothing to do with Zach Taylor, but because the offense scores 22 points and they're all out there healthy, we don't look at the execution failures first. The problem isn't just 
a lack of sustained creativity from Zach Taylor, because that is basically the, bit, the main issue. It's the flaws in execution are amplified because of the inconsistency of creativity. There's creativity in spurts here, but because it's not at the level of the Bills or the Chargers and the Chiefs, the flaws in execution get amplified because they hurt that much more. Well said. I I, I think there are two, like you kind of said, there are two separate conversations to have here. There is the lack of execution the lack of when when the right plays are called and dialed up, they're not always executed. Um, but there are some some things to call into question. I'm going to pull something up in just a second here to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. But you know, I I think the the other issue that a lot of fans have, and I I, I love I guess when you have Burrow and Higgins and Chase and all these exciting players on offense, you feel like man, we should be scoring on almost every single drive. Obviously, that's not realistic. Um, there are teams that that seem to score almost at will, uh, you know, the the Chiefs at times and and all kinds of other teams. The Chargers seem to be on that pace now. I think there are just a, a long sets of dry spells on offense that seem to be maddening. And that could be attributed to both a lack of execution and also some questionable play calling. Now, what I'm really what I'm really talking about and what I'm going to show here, John, this is on NFL.com. I usually pull this up for the post game shows and whatnot. I want to I want to pull up some of the decisions uh, in in some of these downs and and distances and that sort of thing. So you go here. Uh, this is this is one that really bothered me, and I understand you're looking at a fourth and nine. This is the possession after the Bengals got the interception you you alluded to the awuzie interception they go three and out well what happens here i, I you, you know you had a third and 18 and uh, then you get nine yards on that and you're facing a fourth and nine well you know fourth and nine from the green bay 41 fourth and nine is not easily easily achieved you are kind of in no man's land at the green bay 41 so you decide the punt well hindsight being 2020 john the issue with that is kevin huber punts it into the end zone and you only net 20 you know 21 yards on the punt so at that point, you're kind of sitting there saying, well, why didn't you just go for it at that point if that was going to be your result? Or why didn't you maybe move it back a little further away? Whatever the case may be, to get you into a situation where you're not netting 20 yards on a punt. 20 yards netting on a punt is fine if you pin them in the five, you know, 10, 10 yard line, five yard line. When you give it to them at the 20 yard line, that's that's not good football, right? I mean, that's just not sound football. I'm going to go down to the end. There are a couple of drives here. This was a punt, uh, a punt situation here. Um, this this is this points to your execution situation, John. They go for it on fourth and two from the Green Bay thirty, which is the right call to make at that point. And what happens execution wise? There is a holding call on Quentin Spain to negate a Joe Burrow draw for a first down. So you can see here in those two drives what I'm illustrating here. The first one is maybe a questionable decision. The second one is to your point about the execution. And then late in the game, John, I, I understand the hey, let's try and get let's try and get this thing done. This should 49 yards is a tough kick, but it should be one that your field goal kicker makes. However, I guess my thing is looking at the situation, the kickers are just struggling in the game. It's still not an easy kick at 49 yards. You've got a, a, a ball that you thought may have all, all may have been a first down on a Joe Mixon run, and they opt not to go for it. They they kick the field goal and obviously missed it. So that kind of calls into question. Those are some of the instances in both play calling and an execution that that I think 
were real big markers in the game. And then, of course, the two Joe Burrow interceptions. We'll talk about Joe Burrow in a second, too. But those are some of the the critical points and decisions or lack of execution that I, I think really kind of turned the game against the Bengals a bit. Matt LaFleur, Zach Taylor, good friends from their time in L.A. I think very similar minds in how they approach being a head coach and how they communicate and how they lead their teams. LaFleur and Taylor managed this game almost exactly the same. I think Ace Boogie brought that up right after the game. Like, if you want to criticize how Taylor was conservative with, with bringing out his kicker, that's exactly what LaFleur did too. Of course, LaFleur no. has a veteran kicker, a grizzled veteran, and Mason Crosby, who's made some of these kicks before, but they were both going through the same struggles. And LaFleur kicked it with Mason Crosby on like fourth and inches when he had Aaron Rodgers at quarterback. I understand that there is a, a tendency to get on Zach Taylor for not going for that fourth and inches or, or I don't know why they didn't challenge that Joe Mixon run on, on third and two when he was like stuffed right at the line. And it was very questionable as, as to whether or not the ball did cross the line, but you drafted the kicker in the fifth round at, at that point, at that instant in time, there was no gust of wind to push the ball towards the left flag. Like you have Evan McPherson inside 50 yards. The game is on the line. He's made two of these kicks in that yeah. same end zone in the last month. I don't have an issue with that necessarily. I think, and it was funny because there were there were two individual situations where McPherson could have been sent out for like a 57 yarder or a 59 yarder earlier in the game, and he decided to punt. He decided to play field position against Aaron Rodgers, and I think that had something to do with it. They had they had faith in Kevin Huber to pin them inside their own 10, and then ended up I think going into the end zone twice in those situations. So you yeah. only flip the field like for 15 yards, but that was that was the whole plan, right? We we default to conservatism against teams where the talent disparity is actually greater in the NFL because we don't want to give those teams advantages when we don't have to. We want to control what we can control. But on the, on the flip side, when you're more progressive about it, you give yourself, you gift yourself more opportunities to get out in front of it ahead. So earlier in the game, there were people that were, they were chastising Taylor for not sending McPherson out for those long field goals. And then when they did, and later in the game, they missed it. So it was basically a lose-lose situation. But again, I think Taylor managed this the same way that a, a head coach who's now won 30 games and 37 games did, and he just happened to go, end up on top. Well, let's transition a little bit to Burrow because, you know, you mentioned, and you're you're kind of right in saying it, in that, you know, the, the fans aren't ready to jump on Burrow for two kind of egregious interceptions thrown in this game at critical points. Um, they're ready to jump on the coach a bit more, but Burrow, it does shoulder some of the blame here. My thing with him that kind of was a, a redemption thing was the way he was able to bounce back from both of those bad plays and rally the team, not only to get him back to tie when they were down, uh, what was it? God, six, 16 to seven at one point. And, you know, they, he got him back after making bad plays. And that's part of the the greatness of Joe Burrow is the fact that he's able to brush off some of these rare bad throws but here's here's the thing and we'll pull up uh, a video um that that you made a clip showing the throw at in the third quarter that burrow rolled out on and and got you know felt uh i think a little bit of pressure on it and then kind of threw it up maybe trusted his arm a little too much on that and instead of kind of saying putting putting the ball in a place that was either going to be out of bounds and incomplete or only a spot his receiver got it. He kind of made it a contested ball and it was an interception. And that, John, was a critical point in the game because the Bengals had just scored that 70-yard touchdown to get them back in the game right before the half. You have halftime and they get the ball right away. They're moving a little bit and then this interception happens. So they couldn't capitalize on what they usually like to do 
which is score right before half and score right coming right out of half. So talk about that, if you will, a little bit in the decision-making process there. Is it just, um, my, my, my feeling is that this is still technically a, a rookie. Burrow's still a rookie. I mean, he started 15 games at this point. So I mean, he's still kind of a rookie quarterback in a sense. So you're still going to get some of these growing pains, but I'd like to hear, uh, and I'll pull up your video here, but I'd like to hear what you have to say about this particular throw and maybe the, even the other interception. I brought up this play because I felt like it contradicted the narrative that Zach Taylor is not putting his personnel in positions to succeed. He's not, uh, he's telegraphing his overall plan too much to opposing opposing defenses. He's not leveraging, I guess, manipulation in the way that creative play callers do. This play, I think, disproves that because you have heavy 12 personnel. You have two tight ends, three offensive tackles. The, the guy at the top right of the screen, that's Isaiah Prince. That's the third <laughs> offensive tackle, and he's going to motion in towards the formation. The only receiver on the field right now is Auden Tate, a guy that they don't throw the ball to. He primarily blocks when he's on the field. This is keen all 11 Packers defenders that this is probably a run. What is the best play call in this situation for Zach Taylor when you have this personnel out here and you have the defense thinking one thing? play action like under center the Bengals run the ball like 80 percent of the time or something like that the, the, this is keen in the Packers that this is going to lead to one thing and one thing only and the Bengals decided to run play action off of this and take advantage of the safeties crashing down on the play and then go deep have two vertical routes with Auden Tate and CJ Uzoma the problem is Trey Hopkins gets swipe side swiped by Kenny Clark who's a very good player and ends up rushing Burroughs rollout out of the pocket He's going to make a throw on the run here, but ideally you don't want a guy right on your backside when that when that happens. But this is the difference between a guy like Joe Burrow and a guy like Josh Allen, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, dare I say it, Justin Herbert. Like Burrow, he he can't make this throw in this scenario. He just doesn't have that caliber of an arm. But he has the look. He has the separation from Tate. The play worked perfectly aside from Hopkins missing that blocker getting sideswiped way too early. If Burrow has more room to kind of set his feet and gather himself, maybe he makes that throw. Maybe he puts it on the outside shoulder of Tate. And Zach Taylor is praised for this advanced level of play calling. But Burrow, in the in the aggressive manner that he is, you want your quarterback to trust his arm here. You want him to make that throw because the play is there. The receiver is there. Unfortunately, he doesn't have the arm in this scenario, but again, no one is going to blame Burrow for being aggressive. They're only going to look at why didn't Zach Taylor, why doesn't he do more of these things? Well, he doesn't do more of these things because I don't think he fully trusts some of the key components of his personnel just yet. I think this ties in well with maybe what we were talking about a second ago with the the, the play calling and personnel usage, etc., and I want to credit Willie Lutz, who's a, a great follow on, on Twitter. He kind of brought up a point. I mean, I, I noticed, obviously, that Drew Sample was targeted four times in this game, and it was kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's kind of interesting. Drew Sample was targeted four times in this game, and Auden Tate has been tar targeted three times the entire year, including, I think, this play here. So What a stat. That – that boggles my mind. And especially, I mean, there's nothing wrong really with trying to utilize Drew Sample, especially as kind of a, an option where there's, there's a lot of focus and attention from uh, the opposing defense um, that, that, that's going to be paid attention to Higgins and Chase and Boyd and, and maybe even Uzama. And you can have this little outlet 
and, and use him in sample as a, as a guy who's down the pecking order. But, you know, as, as those guys command attention, you can kind of take an easy gain there. Well, what happened is this week and those four targets, one was a drop, one he caught, and he only got six yards on a play that he should have got way more because he tripped. And, and, and then, you know, he, he catches two balls for nine yards on four targets. And so I, I guess, you know, that's one of the issues that I – look back at and say, well, what's going on with Auden Tate? Because this is a guy, especially when you have offensive stall outs, when you have problems sustaining drives, when you have maybe some of these third and mediums, third and longs, that's a guy who moves chains. That's a guy who has an exceptional catch radius. That's a guy who has great contested catch ability. And he's not being used. Three targets in, in five games, John, as opposed to Drew Sample getting four in this game alone. I, this isn't a trash Drew Sample Thing that I'm trying to tell you I'm just I'm puzzled by that and I don't I, and and I guess I can see where some of the frustrations that Auden Tate has quietly shown over the past couple of years I can see where they maybe stem from uh going forward and I know we maybe build Auden Tate up to this legendary status at times that he doesn't really have but I still think he can be a he can be an effective weapon in this offense and they're not using him well they tried to and Burrow underthrew him well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That being said, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like he's he's wide receiver four. There's three yeah. receivers that are clearly better than him ahead of him on the depth chart. I think I think it was telling when they used like Mike Thomas and Trenton Irwin maybe more than him, or they just used a, an overall like group platoon effort to replace T. Higgins when he was out. But when those three are on the field and they're healthy, like there's just no chance of Auden Tate being a future right. member of this offense. And right. unfortunately, he's entering the last year of his deal. And those three guys, at least all of them have at least three years left on their deals. It's just like I, I, I'm not saying what's the point of using Auden Tate, but I understand why the, the lack of attention is being drawn there. But I think this also it could be point to Zach Taylor in, in this game where, you know, Drew Sample is not what the Packers are keen in on. He's trying to get the most out of that pick. And unfortunately, Drew Sample is proving he's not he's not that guy. But unfortunately, yeah, you're right. We do kind of prop up Auden Tate to be that guy when unfortunately there's a reason why he is where he is on the on the depth chart. Yeah, you see uh Michaela Garfield here, hashtag use Auden Tate. That's a that's a good one there. Um Vita Scott saying Auden doesn't get separation. Yeah, that is not his forte, but his forte is size, catch radius, contested catches. And someone else said uh, a guy that draws a lot of flags for pass interference that could be used to. But I'm just saying red zone weapon, third down option. Um, you know, you, you may want to look at that a little bit more. I'm not saying take away all these targets from the other big three wide receivers. But a guy, you know, it, when you see the disparity of targets with, with a player like Drew Sample and a player like Auden Tate, it just causes your mind to, to raise a few questions. Let's keep grinding on here, John, on this one before we transition a little bit. But here's here's kind of the thing here with this game. We talked last week with Mike Petraglia. We, we've talked a bunch about, you, you mentioned it earlier, barometer game and where does this put the, the Bengals? And if they won, what would that have done for them in the eyes of the national media? You know, they would have been four and one and atop the AFC North, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they didn't win. Uh, they made a hell of a game of it and they played well in a lot of respects. They made a lot of mistakes in a lot of other respects. Still lost by three points at home to an NFC powerhouse, took them to overtime. I don't like moral victories. There seem to be people that are taking some moral victories out of this one, and I understand that. But 
there's to me there's just a lot of questions left to be to be answered in terms of you know is this should we be happy that they were close to beating one of the the best teams in the league or perceived best teams in the league um is this simply still a younger team quote still learning how to win um and then there's the whole question about zach taylor in one possession games not closing out things so to me there's a lot of yeah buts there's like yeah you can you can feel good about this one being close but I mean, they didn't win. <laughs> and yeah, you can feel good about the performances in a lot of different ways and that they should have won. But we, we've seen this song and dance before with or without Burrow in terms of them unable to close out a lot of these close games. It's it's always the next game. This is what we talked about with Malik Wright and about how this game was supposed to be the biggest game. But it, there's always going to be another one that means more. It's more impactful. It's closer to the end of the season. It has bigger playoff implications. Week one. They won at the buzzer at home. They won a close game against the Vikings. There was a lot of relief that they can actually do something like this. Even when they don't play their best, they can find a way to win. They go on the road and beat the Steelers by two touchdowns. They beat their arch nemesis. Even when they aren't at the top of their game, they've proven that they can beat him in a regular game. And then they come from behind in prime time against a bad Jaguars team, but they still figure out a way to win. And then they go up against an opponent that's actually respected from a national perspective and something very similar happens to the first two years of Zach Taylor. And then we start to have this conversation again. It's why there will always be that next game that resets the narrative or will reaffirm whatever uh, pessimist has to say about the nature of the Cincinnati Bengals. I think Mo Egger said it best. Like, regardless if you're optimistic or you're pessimistic about this team, this game should not necessarily change your stance. Because if there wasn't that last second gust of wind coming over the Ohio River, that Evan McPherson kick is in. Like, there's no, there's a reason why he was confident and celebrating with his, with his holder and punter when that that kick was halfway into the air. Like, he knew that it was in if there was no wind, and then all of a sudden it gusts it and turns it to the left and it hits the flag. I've never seen that before in my life. Five missed kicks in this game. I've never seen anything like that before. Like, they had this game one, and I know that it took a lot of luck from three. Four total missed kicks from Mason Crosby, but sometimes that's just hap- That's just what happens. I think in total in the first five weeks of the season, we've had 19 uh, games that have come down to like the last play or some type of a last second incident. This this season is crazy, and, and these and it's because of these games that's the reason why. So sometimes these games happen, even though this has been unprecedented. Like these games will be ugly. I think you're very 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 confident about how the defense did. They held the Packers to a field goal and a field goal and a missed field goal and a missed field goal in the second half when they were playing from behind. And for the most part, like they did their job against the best quarterback, in the, arguably the best quarterback in the NFL, arguably the best receiver in the NFL, and just a very talented offense that can do whatever they want regardless of the defense. The defense played much better than expectation. It's just unfortunately there's just execution errors on offense that are holding this team back. And if they perform like, I think we thought they would perform, then they win this game easily, but they didn't, and they almost won anyways. Yeah, the, the defense thing is an interesting point on that. I I guess I just – I may be on a little bit of an island in terms of the performance there. I understand that, yeah, they held them to 22, and, yeah, they held them to, you know, missed field goals and, and a lot of different – a lack of points in the second half. But, I mean, Aaron Rodgers threw for, three what, 340 almost, I think. Um, Devonte Adams had over 200 yards receiving. They had 130 rushing yards. I mean, I, you knew they were going to get theirs and get the stats and whatnot, but, um, you know, it, Trey Hendrickson was the only guy who brought Rogers down and he did it twice. 
there was a lack of big plays from the linebacker group that we have seen um, regularly through the first four games. I don't know. I, 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 I liked what Awuzie did. I liked what certain players did on defense, but, and I understand the limiting the damage in the second half, but I mean, this game would have looked uh, quite a bit different if Mason Crosby didn't have a historically bad game. And I don't know. I, I just, I see, you know, well over 500 yards given up on, on, on offense for the, for the Packers. And I, I go, I don't, I don't really know what to make of that defensive performance, but I, I guess for me, I, it's, I, I'm, I'm still holding a little bit of optimism in terms of what, what the performance showed us in this game, but I still have the familiar worries about unable to close out a game that, that you, you, it's a one possession game. I still have my worries that, you know, at critical moments in the game, there, there are plays that just completely take you, take you out of the ability to put your foot on the throat of an opponent. I mean, it's not just the Quentin Spain holding call, but that was a big play. And that was just kind of a microcosm of what this team has been about for, you know, in the Taylor era and maybe even <laughs> for a really long time. It's just, you have a moment where you can kind of seize control of a game and, and beat a really good team. And um, you know, you just kind of either self-inflicted errors or you just, you don't capitalize. And um, that, that bothers me a little bit, especially when that was against a good team and, and you feel like they could have won the game. And LeVar Hollis in the comment section, this game could haunt them if they were one game out of the playoffs at the end of the season. Well, again, they barely beat the Vikings. They barely beat the Jags. That's two wins to this one close loss. But good teams don't define themselves by how close games go. That's why most people coined them as coin flips. And it's why for the first two years of Zach Taylor's career, we talked about these games are going to flip the other way when they get better. And like that's why it's not a a good, competent way to judge a team based on how they do with close games. Because most of the time, any on a year-to-year standpoint, they kind of reverse because it's mainly just luck. It's it's about it's something as trivial as that kick from Evan McPherson. Like sometimes it'll go your way, sometimes it won't. But if you're not confident in them winning out close games, and I think that's more an indictment on how you feel about the team in general. And if you proclaim, I'm not talking to you, Anthony. I'm just talking to just the fans yeah, in general. The collective like, if, we. If, Exactly. If you're, you know, touting this team as some as a team that can win 10, 11 games because of how talented they are, but you're still worried about how they can finish off close games. I think those two things kind of contradict each other. There are some some other just kind of interesting and or concerning facets with with this team before we close up and we're going to move into our uh, believe it or not and previewing the Lions Two weird things, John, we've had for the Bengals this year. Two overtime games, one that almost went to overtime on Thursday Night Football in the first five contests. You almost have three overtime games, and the two overtime games they did play went well into overtime. So that's kind of an oddball uh, anomaly in itself. And then, of course, the rookie kicker who didn't miss through his first six professional games, preseason and pros, yeah, he kicked the game winner in a big one against Jacksonville, but he's now missed three in the last two games after starting off perfect. Um, I, I don't want to say I'm worried, but that is something to kind of monitor here, especially when he was a guy who was drafted to make not only clutch kicks, but big yardage kicks in clutch moments. That's why Randy Bullock was was replaced by this guy. So I, I don't want to say I'm worried about Evan McPherson. I just 
again, I keep wondering about how he responds to some of these misses um, going forward here. It's like drops, man. It's exactly like the Jamar Chase drops um, conversation because we don't know how these things kind of develop. It's it's completely, um, it, it's an individual thing. It's completely up to how they respond uh, personally. And you know, th- these things are just hard to analyze. Like we're not going to pretend to know the, the dynamics of what goes on when a kicker is in a funk. That's only for the guys who have actually experienced that hardship in there. So, you know, I, I think at, at least from, and just in my two cents, the kicks weren't bad. Like it was 57 yards off the post, like halfway up the post. And again, for the third time off the flag, yeah, that's yards out. Like that's, those were good kicks. And I think the wind definitely affected one of them. It may have affected both of them. I don't think just off of it, like they weren't shanks, you know, it's not something yeah. that's going to completely destroy your confidence. And I'm just speaking from any just past like precedent that's in my mind. Travis Ward here in the Facebook chat says the rookie kicker will be okay. He's been put in a lot of big spots early. He should not have. Well, we'll see, but he's one of the guys that's going to be critical going down the stretch. He's got to, he's got to um, get rid of the, the yips here that are, <laughs> that are plaguing him a little bit in these last couple of games. Support for this show comes from Sylvan learning as a parent. You want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge That takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a... 360 degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're going to continue on here and tie a ribbon and try and move past that one against the Packers. And we have a, believe it or not, to get to. But before we do, we want to tell you guys about some new happenings with our partnership with Symbol. And of course, by now, you probably know if you 
have listened to this show with any kind of regularity, you know about our partnership with Symbol, S-I-M-B-U-L-L dot A-P-P backslash O-B-I. It is where you can buy teams like stocks, and it's kind of a sports stock market. You can buy shares in a specific team and either hold on to it for the short term, hold on to it for the long term, and make some money. And there is a special promotion going on by using the promo code OBI, which of course stands for Orange or Black Insider, but you got to be able to use that promo code and deposit at least $100. John, you want to tell us a little bit more about it? Absolutely, man. If you go to symbol.app, that's S-I-M-B-U-L-L.app backslash OBI and use the promo code OBI, you get a $100 risk-free deposit. That means you can deposit a Benjamin of your hard-earned cash you can invest it into the symbol market. And if you don't like what you see, if you think it's just not for you, or maybe you've unfortunately incurred some losses, you can take that $100 out. No risk, no charge to you. It's symbols incentive to get you to try out their market. And I would re definitely recommend it. It's a lot of fun. It's not like anything that you've ever really seen before. It really is the dream of combining the stock market with sports teams and leveraging your knowledge on how your favorite sports teams or sports leagues that you follow, how those teams are trending either upwards or downwards. They have college football now. They have the NFL, MLB, NBA, and starting, I think, last week, the NHL. The NHL season is now in full mm -hmm. swing. The Sim Blue Jackets, if any Blue Jacket fans are out here in Ohio, they're at a $28.16 share price. They're actually the fourth cheapest NHL Sim market team. So if you want to buy low on the Sim Blue Jackets, definitely check that out. But definitely go to symbol.app backslash OBI, use the promo code OBI to get your risk-free $100 first deposit. We have the link in the live chats for you, so no excuses. Go to the link, use the promo code, and check it out. Well, we've got an interesting one on the Believe It or Not. Let's get to it. What do you got for us, John? So we have an interesting development happening with the offensive line, the Bengals offensive line. Uh, following Sunday's game, we learned that right guard, rookie right guard Jackson Carmen is on the COVID-19 list. It's unclear if he is, has contracted the virus or if he was just a close contact. Regardless of that, uh, there is a protocol that he has to go under uh, two negative tests in like a span of like two days, assuming that he is vaccinated. Regardless of the matter, he cannot practice. He did not practice Wednesday. And the Bengals have to move forward under the assumption that he's not going to play. Again, we don't know if he is or if he is not going to play. That's just still up in the air. If he does not play, there are a couple options that they could have done, but they are going with one of them. One of the options was to move Quinn Spain to right guard, where he did play for bits and pieces last year in his first year with the Bengals, and have rookie Deontay Smith started left guard where he was primarily at during the preseason. Or you can keep Quinn Spain at left guard and have the rookie play his first NFL uh, snap at a position that he's never played before, either in college or the preseason. They are going with the latter, and there's a reason why they're going with, going with the latter. It's because even despite the fact that Deontay Smith did not play right guard in the preseason when he just stuck to one side, uh, Zach Taylor talked about, talked about it in his Wednesday press conference that Offensive line coach Frank Pollock, as soon as the season started, it's no longer sticking to just one spot. It's, you know, you guys are backups. You guys have to be versatile. You have to be ready to fill in at multiple positions. And Deontay Smith has been practicing at multiple spots, including right guard. So it's not like they're just throwing 
uh, Smith potentially in to the fire at a position that he's never even practiced at before. He has taken reps at right guard, and if Jackson Carmen remains in the, on the COVID reserve list, then he will make his first career start Sunday against the Lions at right guard. But the question is, in regards to Smith, this is an interesting time for him to enter the lineup. There was some optimism regarding Jackson Carmen after his first start against the Steelers. He played relatively well. He had some ups and downs, but for the most part, he played a pretty clean game. He then turned around after four days and had a little bit of a rough outing against the Jaguars. But again, short rest, haven't, haven't really done that before as a professional, you know, kind of put it behind you. Last Sunday against the Packers, he was arguably the Bengals' worst offensive lineman. And that was a close call between him and Trey Hopkins, who we can maybe talk about a little bit later. But simply put, Carmen was not good against the Packers. And that was a little disappointing because the Packers don't really have a strong defensive line. Kenny Clark is good, but he's not the pass rusher that he used to be. They have guys like Dean Lowry and Tyler Lancaster. It, it didn't really matter who it was. Jackson Carmen did not play very well, and he was responsible for a lot of the pressures that Joe Burrow was under. So Deontay Smith coming into the lineup right after Jackson Carmen struggled in his third start is kind of an interesting timing dynamic. Believe it or not, Anthony, can Deontay Smith steal Jackson Carmen's job this week? I think he could. I think he could. I mean, I'm looking, I'm, I'm scrolling through some of the Jackson Carmen PFF scores, 53 overall grade on Sunday credited with six pressures. And that's uh, both of those just kind of scrolling her from Chris rolling over a Bengals wire, Joe Goodberry, friend of the show. Um, grading a 32.3 PFF score, I think, in, in run blocking. So, I mean, there, if you're going to take PFF anywhere close to something as scripture, uh, the grades are not there. The one thing that Deontay Smith, I mean, what, what I liked about him, I, I liked him as a project tackle of the future. That's what I always liked him to be, given the the wingspan and arm length and and just kind of raw attributes and athletic ability there. But what they, what I liked about him, John, this spring and impressed me. And I think it obviously impressed the coaches is they're like, Hey, we're going to play you here. And he did pretty well. Hey, we're going to play you here. And he did pretty well. Hey, we're going to, we're going to give you this responsibility. Did pretty well. Now, again, that was again, that was in practice and against preseason competition. It's not regular season starters necessarily, but they kept throwing things at him. And as a guy who was, noted as raw and playing positions and doing things that he hadn't really done before, especially at the pro level, he just kept responding and in large part responding positively to the challenges that they kept giving him. So I, I, you know, I, it's not a let's give up on the Jackson Carmen thing. If Deontay Smith does get the start and play plays well, but I think, you know, if he comes in and provides you with, something better than what we've seen on tape and something better than what we've seen from these PFF scores for Jackson Carmen. You know, I, I think there's a possibility because I, I, there's not long leashes for some of these guys out there under Frank Pollock. I mean, we saw Xavier Suofilo as a starter, he kind of got hurt and now he's, you know, he's kind of out of a job and now they're already elevating potentially the rookie that wasn't really planned to be at right guard there. So I, uh, that's my thing is I, I think he could, I don't, I, I don't know if he necessarily will be, you know, someone where they go, yep, that's your job now. But I think he could go, go in there and at least provide a, a heavy conversation for the coaching staff, given what we saw in training camp and in preseason and is responding to the challenges they kept presenting to him. Yeah. This question's a bit unfair because it's not 
whether or not Deontay Smith can play just as good, if not better than Jackson Carmen. I think we can believe that because of the level of the standard that Jackson Carmen has unfortunately set for Deontay Smith. It's, it's whether or not we believe that this coaching staff would give the reins to yet another rookie after a veteran was the week one opening day starter and may still be starting had he not gotten injured in week two. So that in itself is an unknown, but also like, this was the one position where there was true competition during the preseason. Yeah, there was some mixed reps going on with Michael Jordan and stuff at left guard, but I think we all kind of assumed that that was Quinn Spain's job to lose because he was still playing well in the preseason. At right guard, it was it was just a question of like who is going to seize that opportunity, and we kind of landed on Suafilo because he's the known commodity. He's the guy that you can theoretically trust more because he's been there, even if he doesn't provide the most upside. Like you're at least somewhat comfortable with that compared to two rookies who you know are still rookies, even though one was way more impressive than the other. But you have to remember, like Deontay Smith was looking really good before he missed, I think, the second or third preseason game and didn't finish the preseason uh, healthy. And, and then Jackson Carmen kind of took the wind out of those sails and then kind of ran away uh, with like the second string uh, job at that point. So Deontay Smith was starting a conversation of his own in the preseason. And that's why we're kind of like talking about this as, as if, if he can't actually do this because we saw glimpses of it. And he could just be like the poster child of how COVID really screwed with our minds. Because in 2019, which was the last time that he played football, like he was this really skinny kid. Uh, or, or I'm sorry, the beginning of 2020 was the last time that he played football before uh, this year. He was a really skinny dude at 6'5". He was like 285 because he was quarantined like three times during the late offseason. He wasn't like eating enough. He wasn't training enough because he couldn't because of COVID protocols. So he played his one game in his last year in college at a really low weight. So that basically in our minds, it, it made us think like, okay, this guy's a year away because he needs to get into the weight room. He needs to build that good weight back up and then we can reevaluate in 2022. But he came to Cincinnati, like already built at 315 and he did everything that the coaches wanted to at multiple positions. And he looked the part, not only from a mental aspect, from but from a physical aspect, like he wasn't missing blocks. He wasn't missing with his hands and he was absorbing power at a pretty decent rate. And I know it's preseason. It's hard to evaluate offensive linemen in general like that, but he's already so far ahead of our own established like learning curve for him that like COVID in itself, it, it made us like just kind of weary of some of these guys who didn't play. But in reality, he came to Cincinnati prepared to, to dominate any task physically ready to do so, which is why I think now against a somewhat weak D D Detroit Lions interior defensive line, he can actually do this. I, I, I had, that, that was one of my favorite picks of this of this class, and we, we've talked about him a bit. Now, obviously, those conversations have died down since, you know, he's not been starting and, and that sort of thing. But um, I, I really liked the pick when they made it, and I felt like he was, you know, going to be a project guy. But that project, had, like I said, came along a lot faster in terms of yielding positive results. It came along, along a lot faster than – I think a lot of us anticipated, maybe even the Bengals anticipated. So, you know, I, I'm not ready to sit here and say he jumps in and yeah, he's, he's got this job, but you know, I, I think I, I would like to think that the Bengals are seeing the issues that are occurring at right guard and at center along their offensive line, how it is impacting their ability to throw the ball, run the ball, et cetera. And, you know, not, I, I don't want to squash the, Jackson Carmen thing so soon in his career, but I mean, at, at some point you got to say, you know, we, we got to find something that works here. And uh, you know, if, if Deontay Smith is able to come in there 
and not get credited with six pressures like Jackson Carmen did last week. You know, that's something that they will definitely take note of, whether it's reinstalling Carmen back in the lineup. And if there are more struggles, there's just a very short leash there. And Smith is the guy again, or they just say, hey, you know, we're, we're going to try and go a little slower with Carmen. And, and maybe the plan for him is later this season, 2022, that sort of thing. But um, I do have high hopes for Deontay Smith. I really do. Yeah, and I think ideally you have both of these guys as your long-term starters at guard. If that's where they want to keep Smith and they don't want to mess him up at tackle and they want to look for something else there, I think that's totally fine because I think he could be a fantastic guard with that build and with that intellect. And also, even if Deontay Smith plays well in this game, and this is all, again, assuming that Jackson Carmen doesn't play and he's right. still on the COVID list, even if he does play well, if they want to go back to Carmen and give him another chance for the sake of continuity, I think that's fine. I, I think we're just so entrenched in the idea that you have to put out the best guy out there. You have to just make any changes necessary because Burrow is too important and you can't allow any unnecessary pressures. That was that was the mindset under the the last offensive line coach when he was he would change things by the week because everything was not working. I think you're in a, a higher class of 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 coaching and overall plan under a new offensive line coach under a new direction where you don't have to do that. You have trust in the development, you have trust in the coaching, you have trust in the adjustments. You have trust in that guy developing your second-round pick the way that he should be. And if they want to give him another chance to, to prove them right, then I think that that is totally fine. You don't have to change things just because they aren't working exactly how you want them to. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. I, I think we have to wait a, a few more days here to see, as we sit here and record this show on Wednesday, we have to wait and see what happens with Jackson Carmen and if he will um, – uh, obviously, ideally, we want both these guys to work and and find their place on the offensive line and find starting positions. It's just a matter of where and when and what makes the most sense. So, uh, you know, it, we'll we'll have to see what happens there. But an intriguing situation could be developing though because of it's all about opportunity, right? And what you do with the opportunity when it, when that uh, when that situation arises, are you going to seize it or what have you? So. Um, very, very interested to see what plays out this weekend at the right guard spot. Speaking of this weekend, John, let's start kind of closing up the show by talking some Detroit Lions. This one worries me a little bit for the Bengals. And I know that may be a laughable statement given that they're playing an 0-5 team and the Lions are perennial doormats for the most part even under some of the best years of Matthew Stafford's career they've been perennial doormats in the NFL here's the deal they that you had an impassioned coach at the uh, post-game press conference last week I think he was like borderline in tears or in tears about the effort level that his team is showing and the heart that they're showing and how they're so close and they're not giving up and there have been a few games that they could or should have won I know every team can say that, but I mean, the, the record setting kick by the, by Justin Tucker and, and the Ravens getting the win there. There was the situation last week against the Vikings where they barely lost that one. They were in the game against the Packers for a little while until that one kind of got a little out of control, but I, and then it's just the trap game with the Ravens coming the next, you know, the next week after this Detroit game, you're off this uh, once again, a draining overtime game uh, against a, a quality opponent. So I don't know. I, I just, it worries me a little bit 
I'm not saying I think that the Bengals will lose, but I think that there, there, there is a potential of a less than ideal situation going into this week because of all of those factors. For starters, aside from his hilarious caffeine uh, routine, I think I didn't give Dan Campbell enough credit as someone who could potentially be a good head coach. And I think it's hard not to like the way that he goes about it, the way that he truly does genuinely care and stuff like that. And yeah, that is a factor if you want to say it like that, but teams who try the hardest don't always win. And I think that's the, the biggest case with the Detroit lions. Like they've tried harder than any team in this, this year and they have no wins to show for it. And I think someone in the comment section was like, are you worried about how hard the lions are going to play for Dan Campbell? Are we just forgetting what happened to the Bengals three days ago and how that was heartbreaking? Uh, like it, it didn't lead to Zach Taylor's tears all over their non-cart podium, but <laughs> Um, I think they're kind of upset right now too. And they're kind of feel like they should be a little bit better than their record too. Like, like that, that's not, that's not how it works in the NFL. I feel like it, it's, it's not just a matter of who wants it more or who is pissed the more, the most at the end of the day, you look at the lions roster. They're just not very good. They don't right. have an identity. They have Jared Goff, at quarterback, but they don't have a future at that position. They have major question marks at positions that, they figured that they wouldn't have question marks or opening this season, specifically with the offensive line. Their defense is just not good. They don't have any cornerbacks. They don't have any wide receivers. There's no reason why the Bengals shouldn't win this game comfortably. And I understand that the Lions are coming off a, t- off a tough loss. But at the end of the day, like if, if you if you need that extra motivation, if you need to say like, oh, the other team is going to care more, the other team is more desperate. If you need that to boost your level of ability on the field, then you're just you're just not really cut out for this. And maybe that, maybe that is what the Bengals are. But if everything goes to how it should be, if you would simulate this game a thousand times, the Bengals win 980 of them. Like, like that is how confident they should be with this game. And I know they can't be overconfident and just completely just lose sight of everything. You have to still execute and stuff like that. But the Bengals have clear advantages basically all throughout this game. Yeah, there's a, there's a talent disparity for sure. Um, And I'm not saying even that the Lions would care more about the game per se, I just think that 0 and 5, an 0 and 5 record doesn't necessarily tell tell the whole tale of the tape with the Detroit Lions this year. Even with, uh, I mean, I, I I'm struggling. I, I know they have Amon Ross St. Brown at wide receiver, and I know that because he's an SC guy, and I was watching where he went this year. But I'm kind of going, I, who was Jared Goff throwing to? I know they have DeAndre Swift. <laughs> you know what I mean, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, who who are some of the people on this team? But um, you know, I, I just, there's just elements there and maybe it's just ghosts of Bengals past that, uh, you know, make it, make you think that way a little bit. I want to get to a little bit of an injury report. So everybody gets up to date, by the way, John, this is just a, a, a hilarious title by you here. Uh, Joe Burrow is on a word count, not a pitch count, a word count because of the throat contusion situation. Apparently he is not speaking very much, doesn't have much of a voice as those of you who tuned into our show yesterday knew that he was released um, Sunday night from the hospital and there were no further issues. They did some testing and whatnot, but he is on a word count. So that's another situation that, you know, how's that going to affect the offense, their performance, et cetera. But aside from that, a big one, there's, there's kind of some, some moving parts and, and different things that the lions have had to endure uh, Frank Ragnow, our man crush center 
for the Detroit Lions is now out for the season. I think he's having surgery on a toe. Um, so he will he will be out for this game, which is a big win for the Bengals defensive line as they try and get right this week. Uh, and then I, I, I have not uh, seen the, the actual article, but I'm seeing some buzz about Panay Sewell potentially being moved to right tackle from left tackle, Taylor Decker going in at uh, left tackle. So there are some, some situations there, but you want to run us through uh, what, what we're seeing here in terms of the Bengals side of the injuries uh, with, with what they're dealing with. Yeah. So Trey Hopkins, as you can see, had another basically scheduled rest day with that knee. There's I think still a concern about whether or not he is actually 100%. Maybe he's just fighting through the final stages of that kind of healing in itself. Darius Phillips had an apparent illness, so he did not practice either. Then you had a bunch of guys who were limited. Joe Mixon still working back from the ankle injury, as is Mike Thomas, who missed last Sunday with his ankle injury. Uh, Quinn Spain had a personal day. Deontay Smith, interestingly enough, was limited with a knee injury. I don't know if that was the same one that caused him to miss. I don't know if that's the same injury that caused him to miss uh, the end of the preseason. I think mm -hmm. it was though. So, and then Joe Burrow, uh, I guess can't talk right now or doesn't, or has, has people telling him not to talk just to be sure. But that, the whole thing was like, uh, you know, when you're on the road, you basically go with silent count to negate the, the crowd noise. So there's going to be a lot of nonverbal communication uh, anyways, but I'm assuming it's not going to be that big of a deal. And just to get to some things that weren't in the article, that was my bad. Khalid Kareem, is starting his 21-day evaluation period off of IR. So the team put him on IR just after they finalized the roster. So he had a three-week, um, basically, term to be on IR. He's been on IR for now five weeks. So it's it's very likely that if he, as long as he looks good in practice, he makes his 2021-2021 debut, which is good news for the defensive line. And on the other side of the ball, or on the other side of the field, Taylor Decker started his 21-day evaluation period as well, along with the defensive lineman. So it's it's debatable as to whether or not they keep uh, Pene Sewell at left tackle, where he's been for the first six games of his career, or they put their franchise left tackle and Taylor Decker back there, and they switched up with Sewell. It's going to be interesting to see what they do there. Yeah, and then you see here you got uh, four others did not practice, including Hawkinson, who has a, a knee issue. He can be a weapon. Um, and then you've, you know, uh, so Trey Flowers, the linebacker, didn't practice. And they had three others as of Wednesday that had limited practice. Jonah Jackson, the guard. Uh, DeAndre Swift, who has seemingly been questionable this entire year. Um, like yeah. every week, I have him on like one of my fantasy leagues. And every week, it's like he went from healthy to questionable. He went from healthy to questionable. He's, he's been playing, but uh, apparently, you know, it seems like it's a weekly thing with him where he's questionable. And then the other running back, Jamal Williams, also limited. So um, they've got they've got some some talent at the running back spot. Swift is a is a good player. We'll see what happens with Hawkinson, but the Lions are dealing with some injuries there. So that is the latest with that. I, I guess, and and maybe maybe this is just hyperbolic by saying this, but is this is this a game based on again making statements and? feeling good about where where the Bengals are, feeling good about just everything, especially after how they lost that game last week. Is this a game you feel that the Bengals need to win handily, maybe like how they beat the Pittsburgh Steelers, if not even more so, to kind of make a statement and say, hey, you know, we 
we're still one of the better teams in the AFC. Um, last one got away from us. We feel like we should have had that. Or is this just, hey, just get the win. It doesn't really matter at this point. I, I think this is a game that they should win handily. And, you know, however many points you define as handily, like, is, is up to you. I, I'm trying to look up the spread for this game because I feel like that would be interesting to see. Yeah, they're three and a half point favorites on the road. So a neutral site, this is like a touchdown uh, game for the Bengals in terms of them being favorites. Like, yeah, they, they should win this game by at the very least a touchdown based off of the differences in their rosters, the differences in how far along their visions with their coaches are like they, they shouldn't have a problem with this game. Um, and how your expectations with that and how this game actually ends up going is going to, I, I guess, greatly impact how you vision the rest of the season, because after this game, things kind of get tough. They this is the start of a three-game road trip for them. They go to Baltimore the week after this. They face the Jets at New York after that. And then they host the Browns before a bye week. And then the, the schedule gets really tough after that. So, like, this is a game that they have to win if they want to be in the playoff race uh, come to the end of the season. And I, I guess there's a lot of subjective things following a tough loss uh, at home in, the, in that fashion and then coming back and looking strong and erasing and alleviating all the concerns and stuff like that. There's also the parallel of last year where there were questions about the offense. They were coming off of a terrible game in week five last year against the, against the uh, Ravens. And then they went on the road to face the Colts in an indoor setting. And the offense looked really good for the first time all season. And that started like a three week stretch where the offense was hitting on all cylinders and looking great up until Burrow got hurt. So I don't know if there's going to be that, uh, type of cyclical uh, parallel from last year, but it would be a great time to start because there is no excuse as to why this offense with this talent can't produce against that defense. What are, who's the most important player out to not name Joe Burrow? Who are, who are some of the important players specifically this week? Obviously right guard. We talked at length about that. That's a position to watch. And And what do you think the Bengals need to do to get this win my my take on the latter question is that they need to start fast um they, they can't they can't stall out on drives early and give whether it ends up being false hope or real hope to the detroit lions early in this game i think they need to just kind of get down they need to get on them early score points early that's been kind of an issue where the first you know i, I what, what they haven't scored a point on an opening drive all year right so uh, they, they need to get some form of momentum early is kind of something that I think is is needs to be a priority this this week. And I, the, the weird thing about the the lack of points on opening drives, I know there was the missed field goal that, that they had an opportunity to. But, you know, those are usually your scripted kind of plays that you, you go through and during the week. And usually you execute that opening drive game plan pretty well. And that just hasn't been the case with the Bengals. But. I'd love to hear your key players and and keys to the game, John, as we uh, start wrapping this thing up. Well, I know one thing: a lot of Bengals fans are going to be watching number fifty-eight for the, uh, yes. the blue and gray there. <laughs> yes. Regardless of what edge he's protecting, uh, that's a matchup that the Bengals have to win. Unfortunately, you know he's in a learning curve right now, and he's not playing his best football. He's not playing like the guy who dominated at Oregon in 2019. So regardless if it's Trey Hendrickson or if it's Sam Hubbard, they need to take advantage of that because Jared Goff does not do well under pressure or evading pressure of that sense. But also I'm looking at T Higgins. We talked a lot about him 
uh, in the offseason as the guy who ascended into this number one receiver role. And who knows what his numbers would be had he not injured his shoulder against the Chicago Bears. But we've had a Jamar Chase game multiple times. We've had the Tyler Boyd game. We've had the C.J. Uzoma game on the same day as Tyler Boyd. You know, when is T. Higgins going to really break out and dominate and assert himself against the defense? And I think he's, he's told the media that he's 100% now. He's fully recovered from that shoulder injury. There's no limitations. I'm interested to see how much uh, Burrow goes back to him because there are some people out there who are thinking that he's kind of locking in on Jamar Chase. And for good reason, things tend to go well for the Bengals when they target Jamar Chase so yeah. far. But is T. Higgins going to reassert himself as the guy that we all pegged him to be uh, leading up to the season in this game. Kind of a rough one last week for T Higgins, two drops, one of which was just a critical one at the sideline, kind of started turning up field. It looked like before he secured the ball and he kind of said, you know, man, I was up, up at night thinking about that one. There was another one where Burrow put a ball. It was low and away. It would have been a difficult catch, but it was exactly where it needed to be. He dropped that one did have the nice two point conversion play though. So, um, you know, he's had a couple of touchdown catches. He's been pretty good in the red zone and whatnot, but the injury kind of set him back a little bit. I think this is, to your point, a great week for him to kind of have a big game. It's, I guess, also with the Sewell talk, it's also probably a really good week for Jamar Chase to have a really, really big game. Another one here. He is in some elite, elite company in terms of rookie production so far this, this season. So it would be nice in this game, highlighting both both of the players that likely that pick came down to for the Bengals, it would be nice to see Chase uh, go off and make some plays and help the team win. Do you have a prediction in this one, John, a score prediction? Ooh, the over-under for this game is surprisingly low. Maybe that has to do with the Lions and how the Bengals are playing on defense. But considering the spread is, again, three and a half for the Bengals, I think Vegas is not expecting either team to eclipse 30 which would disappoint some Bengals fans because they're thinking this in this setting in Ford Field inside a dome against a bad defense, this is the perfect opportunity for that offense to really explode for the first time. I'm going to say they get close to 30. They don't break 30. I'm going to say they win 27 to 20. Okay. I'll say, I'll say 26, 17 Bengals. I think they win. Um, I, I think, you know, that it'll, it might be a little closer than we all are comfortable with at some point, but I just think where, where the Bengals have more talent is in the areas wherein the lions are really deficient. You mentioned really deficient in talent. You mentioned the, the secondary being an issue and the Bengals secondary being one of the stronger points, albeit giving up a lot of yards to Rogers last week. Wouzier is playing well. Bates had kind of an off game, but when he's on, he's one of the best in the game. Same same with Bell, uh, kind of an off game for him, but he's a guy that you know when he's when he plays well, he's he's really good. So I think that matches up well against the lack of big time talent at wide receiver for the Lions there. So we both have the Bengals winning by a possession or possession plus for the Cincinnati Bengals. I think that's uh, I think that's where most people would probably have this one going forward anyway. Let's drop the mic and get out of here, John. What do you have for us as we start to lock the door, close it, uh, the whole thing, and get on out of here? Yeah, I'm not going to speak too much about this. Uh, just but just with the whole John Gruden thing, um, I think I, I don't know why I'm still shocked at seeing people kind of cape for Gruden and what's happened with him and the overall fallout. But you know, people don't really want to hear my perspective on it. But if you do want to hear 
a good perspective on it from someone who's in the position that John Gruden used to be, go to the Los Angeles Chargers Twitter page and click on one of the latest videos that they posted. It's about uh, Brandon or Brandon Staley, their head coach, speaking mm-hmm. on the subject. And I think he can say what needs to be said better than anyone who's not in that position. So definitely check him out for that perspective, because I think there's still a lot more people in this world that kind of need it. Yeah, that was shocking and disappointing. Um, you know, I had I had the pleasure of meeting Jay Gruden at, at one point, and he was a really, really nice guy when he was coaching with the Bengals. Really nice guy, at least when I met him in our brief interaction and stuff. And, uh, you know, I, just kind of hearing some of this stuff from, you know, and I think now he's painted in a much different light. But at one point, you know, John Gruden was, uh, when he was on ESPN, he did the, you know, the, fired coach quarterback camp and all these things that we kind of watched. And he, he was entertaining on Monday night football when he was there and, and just, I don't know, kind of seeing and hearing some of this stuff. It's, it's pretty, pretty disappointing and pretty shocking that, uh, that, that, that some of that, some of that stuff has come to light. And um, yeah, I, I do, I think I do know what you're talking about with that Brandon Staley clip too. So uh, definitely recommend people watching that. Well said, John. I I want to bring this up. I'm surprised we haven't really talked about this. This is from, uh, and I had the pleasure of meeting this guy uh, at the Vikings game. AJ Carbone. He and his family do like the the, fun, the really cool like fun Bengals super fans videos, and uh, it's a really cool Twitter account. He recorded. Um, this was this is Peter King talking about. The Bengals Hall of Fame voting and things of that nature, which I found to be pretty shocking. I don't think we've really talked about this much, John. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to play this. It's a 40-second clip. Uh, it's from Bengals super fans on Twitter. I think right now we are watching the dawn of a great quarterback career. Now, can you be a Cincinnati Bengals quarterback in this era and eventually make the Hall of Fame? I don't know that. Um, You know, I found 30 years being on that committee that where you begin your career has an awful lot to do with whether your career ends up in Canton or not. But Joe Burrow right now looks to me like he's going to be a top five quarterback in the league, top seven or eight at the very least. So that, of course, was following the Jaguars win. So the narrative kind of obviously is quieted a little bit in terms of, you know, Joe Burrow hype based on it probably would have exploded had the Bengals beat the Packers this week. I don't want to – this is like could be a segment all in itself, but we just hadn't talked about this. That was a really disheartening comment, um, not not like a, as a shot at Peter King necessarily because I, he kind of gave us a look behind the curtain, and it's it shows a – Shows a bias there, an anti-Bengals bias in terms of the Hall of Fame voting, which we kind of all kind of figured it existed, but he kind of almost like spilled the beans on it. I don't know if the, I don't know what to make of this because Peter King is constantly critical of the Cincinnati Bengals because of his time covering the team. He he likes to slight them pretty often, um, as does Mike Florio, and and when those two get together, that's kind of a common theme, but. It just basically said, you know, if you're a Cincinnati Bengals quarterback, it's very, very difficult for you to make the Hall of Fame, even if you are an excellent one. Pretty disappointing. There, there is a difference between thinking it like logically and then basically hearing it. And it's it's confirming um, just things that you believe to be true. I also think like 
I, it wasn't Peter King who said this. I think it was Mike Tanier for Football Outsiders. Basically, like the the Hall of Fame committee is comprised of a lot of older gentlemen who grew up in those eras where the Raiders and the Steelers and the Cowboys were dominant. And that was like where a lot of the media around football was centered. And that's where the attention was. And it was just hard to really gauge how good some of these players were in, on some of the smaller market teams. As time has gone on, though, like a lot of those names are still involved in the committee and the selection process. And it's made it very archaic based off of how the game has evolved and how media has evolved in it as well like there's no longer a small market like team there's no longer these biases against teams that don't have attention because social media has changed that so i am i am interested to see in the next i guess 30 years how that changes specifically for the Bengals because they will have more guys that are going to be eligible and going to be worthy of the hall of fame and because we are now living in a world where you can see more of, of things from other teams that may or, that may not have been as successful or dominant or don't have dynasties, how they are now treated in the process because a lot of those guys are pretty blatantly going to die pretty soon because they've just been involved with this for so long and there's going to be people who replace it, people who are more smarter and have more access to things that those guys didn't used to in the past. So I'm really interested to see how much this stays the same even though everything around the media and the and analysis of football has changed. Winning will change that. That's the only thing that's going to change that. And I think that is why Joe Burrow is such an integral and, and almost revered type of player for this team, because we all feel that he is the player that can send them to the level that they want to be at to erase some of these stigmas, erase some of these biases that seemingly exist. And I, I was pretty shocked that King just kind of outright said that. Um, I think we all kind of maybe thought it, but it, it was pretty shocking to see to see that. So at any rate, I think that was on a pro football talk video, daily video that he did there. So at, at any rate, uh, that is going to do it for for us on the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. He's John Sheeran. I'm Anthony Cazenza. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You can get this show on your favorite audio streamer as well as on YouTube. Go check it out. We appreciate the support. Take it easy. Have a great week and we'll see you we'll see you soon.